This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Stevie Grieve is the head of coaching at Burlington Soccer in Ontario, Canada. He is also an analyst, a coaching educator, and the designer of the Tactical Teacher Program, which you can find by visiting onsidesoccerconsulting.com. His coaching experience is scattered throughout the entire world. So we unexpectedly spent a big chunk of time talking about what he was up to in India but it ended up being one of the best parts of the conversation and I actually learned a lot about Stevie that I did not know. In this episode, we discuss what a youth player in India has to go through just to get to training. We also talk about how he ultimately decided to leave India and coach in Canada. And then we end the conversation by talking about some challenging moments in Canada and specifically how he challenges his coaches to really explain how they want their teams to play. You can connect with Stevie on Twitter, and his Vimeo account is loaded with a bunch of brilliant short clips. And when I say short clips, they're like five to 10 second clips. And those are very, very useful clips. I find them very useful, at least, and I think that you would too. Uh, He also has some longer videos up there, but it's those short, short, short clips that I think are very, very special and useful. Uh, You can find links to his Twitter and to his Vimeo account in the write-up of this podcast, which is available on 343coaching.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy this episode or just the show in general, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. And you can help other people find the show by giving it a five-star rating or a review or just sharing it on a social media channel of yours. But the absolute best way to support the 343 podcast is by signing up for the 343 Premium Coaching Education Membership Program. What you get is an online program that provides you with the best coaching education for a fraction of the price of other licenses and courses that are out there. And long before this podcast existed, I was a member of the 343 Coaching Education Program. I was able to learn things that added extreme value to my team and to my personal coaching education without getting confused or distracted by excess information that had nothing to do with how I actually wanted my teams to play. The 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession-based methodology and allows you to study and learn from one of the best coaches in American soccer. And that education is delivered to you through videos of real games and real training sessions so that you are able to learn the core activities 
and start coaching possession soccer yourself. You also get ebooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on field clinics, and there are member forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. And you get all of that 24 7 for the price of $295, which is an incredible value. If you want more information or if you want to see more of the benefits or check out some of the videos of the teams that are featured throughout the membership program, you can visit 343coaching.com for all of the details. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. I hope that you guys are ready for this episode with Stevie Grieve. Enjoy. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. There we go. I don't actually know how to use this thing. <laughs> I've had an iPad for six months. I've used it twice. <laughs> We're going to learn together. You can hear me fine? Yeah, sorry. I just had to shut the door because they guaranteed the dog will jump on the bed. <laughs> All good. All good. Uh, what's up, brother? How are you? Hi, I'm good. I've just... Uh, just had a baby so kind of like my life's all over the place that's cool man boy or girl yeah a little boy nice name is ruben so i think with that name he has to play football i think so i think so yeah. how uh, are you i'm doing good man doing good already uh already had one interview today had to move back another uh, another interview because the weather here moved up my referee assignment so i'm kind of just i'm kind of scrambling at the moment but it's all good it's all good <laughs> How how do you find refereeing? Fuck man, <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. I've I've done it for so long. I, I've done it for almost twenty years now. So I, I started when I was a kid, and I, I guess I'm I'm used to a lot of the stuff. But working with working with other people that aren't that don't have the thick skin and and like to get wrapped up in in talking with the coaches and the fans and and reacting to the to the bad behavior. Is, yeah. is probably a bigger challenge for me now. Like working with with weaker teammates is is pretty. Uh, I hate saying that out loud. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but it's it's definitely one of the more challenging parts of the job because it makes uh, match management that much more difficult when you have a referee that wants to to engage with with the uh, with the bad behavior. So <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a different animal. But I I actually really enjoy it. I found out the other day that I'll be doing um, some D one uh, Division one college games. Uh, here in California in the spring and the fall, so that'll be pretty cool. Uh, just gonna, gonna see how far I can push it. We'll see. Yeah, it's a lot. E- it's a lot easier to progress in refereeing than it is in coaching, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coaching I is think, I way think different. Where, where you are, it's near impossible. It's hard, man. It's hard. Yeah, um, and and it's actually uh, it, it's it's what makes guys like you and jed and some other people that i think have made the the jump to to canada i'm super interested in in why that is and why you guys have kind of landed there and not and, and not somewhere else so I, i'm i'm curious to get your uh your your story about your journey yeah i mean like when when me and my wife we were in india for three years and i remember like in the last year of my contract at the tv the academy was going well the club was doing well um, 
some some kids from under 19s went to Pune, who were like a partner team, and then one went to Villarreal. And I remember thinking like, we could do so much more if I stay. And I said to Sarah like, what do you think about staying another year? And she was like, can we just go to a normal country, please? <laughs> I was like, I was like, right, go and get a map and pick pick normal countries, like pick five normal countries that I can get a job in. And I think she picked like she picked like Germany, Denmark, Norway, Canada, and I think Sweden. I was like, like pretty normal white man countries, and I was like, right, okay. I think reasonably like Norway and Norway and Canada can do that. And then um, the guy who was the technical director at the time, he'd got in touch with me and wanted me to be the head of the national teams for Bahamas. So he'd he'd asked me in February to come here. And this was probably in April we'd had this discussion. And she said, I'd like to go to Canada. So I'd already spoken to about four or five clubs to come in as like a head of coaching or director of coaching or coach development manager, like whatever you want to call it. And then that's how we ended up here. So like I had I had the opportunity to go and coach in the Malaysian Premier League um, in Indonesia and in Thailand. And Thailand was the second league. But she wanted like stability in a normal country. And I, I don't mind like a volatile situation. It doesn't concern me. But she wanted a normal place to live and have a family and stuff. So it was like, right, okay, let's come to Canada. And then we fixed, figured out like the five different options we had. And then I was like, right, where do you fancy? And I already kind of knew, like, I wanted, I'd rather go to Toronto. So Burlington was like the closest to Toronto. And then she did her research and it was like, oh, Burlington's the nicest mid-sized city in Canada. <laughs> so she, I was like, is that as normal as we could get? And she was like, yeah, let's just go there. And then that was it. Like, how how did you how did you go from Scotland to Asia? So, um, when I was younger, I like I was part of one of the largest youth clubs in the east coast of Scotland. I was like the head of coaching when I was like twenty, and then I got a job working for United Soccer Academy, and then when I came back, I worked for Dundee. After that, I went to Switzerland for two years, and then when I was in Switzerland, um, the owner of the academy I moved to in India, his wife was studying in Lausanne which was a city I lived in in Switzerland. So he'd got in touch with me, I think, because he'd read a couple of my books. And then when he got in touch with me, he said, oh, look, I'm going to be in Lausanne in a few weeks. Do you want to go for go for lunch? So we sat, spoke for four hours. He told me what his project was in India. And honestly, John, it was like probably one of the most interesting things I'd ever heard. Like I was, I was so ambitious, but so like in the grounds of wanting to help people and give them hope. So... He'd come over to watch me training after we'd had the discussion. So he came to watch me train. Um, I did half in French, half in English, just to explain to him. And then he came back about two weeks later to watch me coaching a match. And I remember we were 1-0 down after eight minutes against a team where we needed to win. And I changed it from... We, they were playing like a... They were playing like a really aggressive like 4-4-2 diamond. So I'd switched it to like a 3-4-3 diamond. I went man for man with a spare man at the back, man for man in midfield with two spare wingers and tried to pin the centre-backs and tried to create a free man like on the left side centre. And I remember him saying to me at half-time, did you change the shape? And I was like, yeah. But why? Because we needed to get control of the game. And then he, he, he phoned me like the day after. He says, look, I'm going to get rid of four Portuguese coaches. I want you to just take over. I was like, what? He says, yeah, we don't need the Portuguese guys. Like They're not at the level that you are. Like We, need, we want you to come in and be fresh and educate our coaches. So, yeah, they made the jump just because he came over and told me his ambition and the ambition was incredible. And then I was like, this is this is exactly what I wanted because I wanted to work full time. 
So when I, when I took the academy job, I think uh, we had a few parents complaining, like, "Why? how's this little Scottish guy going to be better than four experienced Portuguese guys? And I remember just saying, well, just give it three months, then tell me how bad I am. I remember after about six weeks, I remember going, this is 10 times better. Like, training's better. Coaches are better. There's an idea behind it. Like, this is, this is so good. And then we made um, made a lot of changes, a lot of work, a lot of sacrifices. And then three years later, I think we have probably the best academy in South Asia. What What were some of the, the main changes that you made during that transition of uh, you coming in, the old coaches going out, what what were some of the, the most uh, important things that you wanted to establish right away, I guess? So straight away, I wanted to give the coaches a little bit of freedom. Um, and what I mean by freedom is like timings of sessions because when I arrived, it was like a one-hour session would be 15 minutes of a warm-up. The warm-up would be like jogging or like passing back and forward in a line, right? something pointless. And then they would jump straight into a match um, of some sorts without having the technical skill or the tactical skill or anything to be able to achieve what your objectives would be. And then they would play a 15-minute match and the coach would say nothing. Or the coach would spend most of the time shouting, actually. So I changed the structure to go from from this mumbo-jumbo thing to we're going to go, we're going to develop the technique, we're going to have a little bit of time in isolation, but very minimal, and then we're going to layer it. So two things we wanted to establish was competitions to try and um, increase the speed of the activity in isolation to try and improve the ability to use the ball um, while having a little bit of pressure. Then we did it like... Um, against each other and then against other groups and so on. So we tried to establish like a higher a higher tempo to training because a lot of it was very slow. But in India, what you have is it's 40 degrees. So you have to manage the intensity to different parts of the session. Then the second bit is instead of having this half an hour middle part, which was really rigid, we split it up into two sections. One was like a small group activity where you do like 3v3 plus two or something like that. And then we'd move it into like a, a bigger area game. So we'd do like a three zone game for through balls or something like that. Um, and we'd have like 3v3 plus 2 going into playing for through balls. So to try and structure training so that it was more realistic to the activities you would find leading into a match rather than just, here's a match, play that, learn nothing, continue the cycle, and then just say you need to give the kids time to learn rather than give them the information that they're going to need to then be able to solve problems later on down the line once they know what they're doing. So we changed a lot to do with the, the session plan structure, Um there was a higher focus on actually having detail within coaching. So at the start, there was a lot of, oh, just try this. Can you try that? Can you do turns? Can you use both feet? And then I'm going, can you touch the ball with the bottom of your big toe, bend your knee and turn your hips at the same time? And actually working on the mechanics of the skill. And then from that, when I would look at small group sessions, so how can I orientate my body shape to make sure I've got um, superiority in front of a defensive line, superiority behind the defensive line? and then actually work on the positions to break the press. So instead of just doing a four-on-one rondo, we'd make it like a three-on-one where you had to circulate the ball, hit the first man, like the defensive midfielder, turn, and then you play like a 3v2 into two goals. So if you can imagine it's split into two zones, you've got like, um, two centre-backs being pressed, a defensive midfielder behind it, so you have to move the ball, find the defensive midfielder, defensive midfielder turns, you've got two central midfielders or two wingers on the side, make it a 3v2 in the second phase. If the guy wins the ball in the first phase, you've got to try and dribble across the line on the counter-attack. So we tried to make everything based on what is your model and how do we want to play? And then how do we replicate all the technical demands for all the profiles that we wanted? 
So the profile of a left back and the profile of a central midfielder are different. Um, and then what were the technical demands we needed, the tactical demands we needed, the physical demands of each position, and then how do we train it? So at the start, there was like it was just like this really flaky thing with no detail, just fluffy stuff that you you could you could just say to pe- people that don't know what they're talking about. Oh God, this will be really helpful. You know, we're going to let them figure it out. And I remember one of the parents said to me after a few weeks, "Why do you not just let them figure it out?" And I says, "Do you just let your kid cross the road the first time and get hit by a car and go? Oh, maybe you should figure it out." No, because they don't know what they're doing. So at the start, we have to tell them until they know what they're doing. Then they can figure it out. If you have a frame of reference, you can teach yourself. If you have no frame of reference, what are you going to do? You're just going to keep making the same stupid mistakes again. So let's just not do that. Let's accelerate the process. So there was a lot of a lot of things where we want ingrained detail rather than just just figure it out. I, I, I don't get that. No, me neither, man. Me neither. What? What were some of the big differences in, in just the, the the actual player the player types when you when you come from Scotland you know a, a very rich history of of football I mean obviously in 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 some of the other countries you were at too much much different upbringing yeah, yeah. And, and, and football history and football culture than than India and and I I I was thinking about this question how I was going to ask it as you were talking because I didn't want it to sound demeaning to to the you know to to India, like it is, yeah. they don't have the history or or the the the. I see. I don't. I don't know the right way to say it. Like it's not as famous as like going somewhere like Japan now. Yep. What you find between like say, say an Indian player and a Swiss player is a Swiss player is very efficient. They they understand the game because they're trained in a specific way. Indian players don't have that. Indian players are very much street players. So what you find is if we were to break a player down to technical skill. Um, intelligence and physical skill and the Indian player generally won't have all three they'll have incredible technical skill and absolutely no idea what they're doing and they'll have brilliant agility for example or you'll get a guy who really really knows what he's doing but is immobile but he's good with the ball so you get players like I remember we, we had a guy playing in the professional team called Baji, and he would just sit in the middle of the field as slow as a week in the jail positionally perfect and would never give the ball away but could not run if it was a transitional game he was the worst guy in the world you have to take him off and then we had guys like um, the boy I used to always bring on the last 20 minutes called Rahul Kantara absolutely zero positional sense in the world but technically absolutely frightening lightning quick no fear if the ball went into a dangerous area he was going for it so he would make these really really rash decisions but then he'd end up in the middle of the box and score and you're looking at it going I have no idea how he's ended up there, but he's scored. So maybe he does have good positional sense or maybe he sees things that everybody else doesn't, but ten time, nine times out of ten, he's in the wrong place. But you know that if you give him the ball, he can beat two people and lash it in the top corner. So you can look at a, an Indian player and say, technically good, physically good, brainless, or really, really super clever, but immobile. Very, very few players that you're going to get have got all three. The ones who do have all three are the ones who, who can go far. And to be fair, like if you look at the national team now, even at the youth national team level, there are a lot of kids coming through who have all three because they were scouted on the basis of being good technically or physically fantastic. And then they're being coached. And a lot of the coaching is to do with game intelligence. So there's there's a lot of that. That, that actually brings up a, a an interesting topic scouting in in India 
and you know how how they go about finding players in in a country that's so populated but also very disconnected from from the rest yeah. of the country like I, I i was looking at traveling over there last year for the um what was it the u17 world cup that they, yeah. that they hosted and i was looking at how i would get from from location to location it's like just just travel just general travel is terrible and, yeah. and dangerous and and um yeah. And, and so, yeah. How how are players being scouted? How how were you able to find players for for your teams and and look at your opponents and get to your opponents? And so, like in our in our youth academy, it would be local kids. So we had like we were in eight cities at the time. So we had like Delhi, Dehradun, uh, Chandigarh, so northern cities, Mumbai, Pune, now Bangalore. So all these metro areas where you've got maybe ten or twenty million people, players come to you. For our um, I-League under-19 team, we had 650 kids, Think I, I think, came. And I remember two of the best ones turned up late because their train came from Hyderabad. And Hyderabad's like a 20-hour train journey. So the Jeez. train was like four hours late. So we started the tryouts at like 6.30 in the morning. We're still there at 10 o'clock at night. So these kids turned up at like four in the afternoon. So they were late. And then we didn't have a registration form. And I was like, look, if they've traveled this way, I want to see them. Put them in. And two of them were two of the standout ones. So we put them in the next round. We had um, one kid came from Mizoram on the train. He took three trains. He went from, um, I don't know what the main cities in Mizoram, went to Kolkata, um, went to Lucknow, ended up in Delhi, 36 hours on the train to get there. And this kid turns up and you're going, he's not eating properly. He's not hydrated himself properly. Definitely hasn't stretched on the train, but can play. And then you've got kids from Delhi. So for that sort of level, like the kids will the kids will make the sacrifice and actually go that far to do it. I can't imagine um anywhere else in the world where where a player would have that dedication to put themselves through that, to have an opportunity. Like I can't imagine a kid going from like Iowa to LA for a trial and saying, Right, you have to you have to get ten buses to get there. By, Never happened. By himself without his parents. Yeah, like it never happened. So, like, and if we take an example of the kids within our own academy, like the scholarship kids, so um, 33% of our, our gross profit went into scholarships. So a kid from a really poor area would be given, like, a metro card, um, money for food. We'd try and help them with their diet. I think sometimes they got a dietitian. We'd teach them how to make nutritious meals based on the amount of money that have available. Um, we'd pay for their school in some cases. So we'd give them absolutely everything. And then if they were really good, we'd take them to Europe for a tryout. So we had one kid called, what's his name? We boy, boy called Kalam. He was about nine. And the most mature, in fact, no, he was about seven and a half, eight, actually. The most mature wee boy you've ever met in your life. He'd jog from school. He'd jog about an hour through Delhi to get to training. And then he would turn up and he'd be the best player by a mile. And you're like, that wee boy's jogged from school. He should be tired, and there's absolutely no, there's nothing in his head that says fatigue doesn't exist. No matter how polluted it is or how hot it is, that wee boy turns up, no fatigue. So we managed to figure out how to get him there. So we managed to find him transport. But we had other kids like Mohammed Akib who'd come from like two hours from Faridabad. So he would, he would like get a, he would get a bus into Delhi and then jog an hour to get to training. Jesus. So just. Like these kids, if they want, if they want it, they'll they'll find a way to do it. And the ones who are good enough, well, we had um, 
like out of our academy, like one went to Villarreal and two went to are playing in Holland just now. So they like they are good enough. They just need the opportunity, or they need the coaching to give them the opportunity. But the determination and the desire is there. What's the and I I absolutely did not anticipate talking about Indian soccer with you, but what's the what's the landscape like there right now? Because it seems like you know China's making massive investments. I, I, if I remember correctly, you know the 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 league. I, I don't know the name of the league in India, but I feel like they're they're becoming more structured and, and providing more yeah. professional opportunities than ever before. So, can can you kind of maybe just describe what the landscape is like there and and what you how how you guys kind of fit into that picture? So, in, in India, there's two leagues which run parallel, which FIFA have a problem with. So you have the Indian Super League, which at the start was billed as a tournament. So in year one, they had Perez, Freddie Jungberg. Um, Delhi had Del Piero Matarazzi was there so Roberto Carlos was at Delhi Dynamos in the second year Diego Forlan was at Mumbai so the Indian Super League is like the glamour league and then you have the I-League which has been running since 2007 but that's the league for the hardcore fans because that's been going on for years and years so that's where most of the players would always come from but at administrative level it's run like amateurs no youth academy no coaching process just hire somebody and pick some players and hopefully you win um and now the Indian Super League's come along and they've tried to professionalise that a lot more. So the competition's been good. So you have two two leagues that run next to each other. Um, and then in the I-League, you have an I-League second division. And then you have all the regional leagues. So they kind of have a pyramid. So for example, like the team I coached, Garwal FC, if we got from the Delhi League into the Indian second division, we could win the Indian second division and go into the I-League. So there's very much a pyramid like we don't have in the MLS. Um, whereas the Indian Super League wants to follow kind of the MLS model because it's owned by IMG Reliance. And I think IMG are a company in Florida, right? They have the, the academy there. So the Super League has to be promotion relegation because that's what they already have in the I-League. So it's going to be an interesting situation. What's what's funny about like scouting and finding players and giving them opportunities is like we had one player who was an incredible, incredible kid, incredible player. Um, but we tried to find out his like football playing history, and he's played thirty eleven v eleven matches in his life, and he was like sixteen. <laughs> so you'd ask him to go and play professional football with men who have been playing for like ten years, and this kid's played thirty matches because a lot of it's because it's urban and there's not much space. So they'll play seven v seven until they're like fifteen in some places. But the the I League and the, the Indian Super League are they're good. The Super League is good, but like Bengaluru got to the, the final of the Asian Europa League. So like the second continental competition. So the standard is a lot better than people realise, but at the same time, like it's people want to compare it to European football and it's not. It's completely not European football and it never will be. It's its own thing. China are spending so much money because they've got the money from real estate. India's got more money in terms of um technology based business and people are willing to invest in it. So it's it's a place where players will come from in the future. I guarantee it. When it was time to make the decision to to leave and and go for your next uh, go for your next adventure, was it was it difficult for you knowing and seeing everything that kind of went into it and, and you yeah. know, knowing the stories of the kids and and you know how far and how how much it took for them to actually get to where they were? Yeah, like not, but not just the kids. Like when when I started, we had three full time coaching staff, and when I left, we had like fifteen. So you develop relationship with the staff. And you see, you see a guy at the start who can coach a little bit, but he's really, really keen and enthusiastic. We had a guy called Anup Singh, Vivek Ravat, who 
um, both keen, so keen, but couldn't put things together. At the end, they were like good professional coaches, guys that could work in British youth academies and do a good job. So you develop relationships not only with the kids. Like I'm not, the, I'm not the coach of the team. I'm the the head of the academy. Like so, I have to see everybody. Um, but the staff, like you leave them behind, and you you hope that after three years you've given them the opportunity that they can run with it themselves. And thankfully, like I still stay in touch with with a few of them, and I still do some work with them. They they're more than self sufficient. Like all the Indian guys run it, there's absolutely no need for a European coach to be involved or somebody to come and pretend to know what they're doing because they guys really, really do know what they're doing now. So it was difficult. I remember, I remember. My, what I always say is, if that job is in Europe, I never leave. Never have left. Like if that job is in Italy, I'm I'm there for my life. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. And this is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up and a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. That's a that's an interesting way to 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 think about it. Like if if that job was just anywhere else but but there, your whole your whole situation changes. Your wife is happy, you're you're, you're okay with raising your kids and your family in in, in that location, but yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, well, you know, it's sad to leave, but like I think everything in your life, you you evolve and you move on, and something something else happens in your life, and then you you see what happens. When uh, when did you know that you were going to be moving to? Uh, oh, let me let me let me. I guess ask this a different way. Did you leave India knowing that you were going to be? Uh, working with Burlington? No. So I knew that the offer was there. Or verbally it was there. And it had been there for a long time. Um, Kevin joined in the February, so the offer was there for a while. But when we got back to Scotland, I spoke to spoke to two of the biggest clubs in the country. And I was really, really keen on joining one. Um, and my family are all supporters of the club. So I was really, really keen to join, but financially from where I was in in India and what we were trying to do, because like, we wanted to buy a house or build a house and things like that, I couldn't make it work in any sort of way. Like, I could make it work now because of 
because of my business, but I could not make it work then. Um, and I wanted to stay full time. So there was there was that opportunity which which I was keen on. There was there was a couple other ones, and then um, once I was formally given the offer to go to Burlington, it was kind of like right, we need to make a decision now. Do we go to that club um, or do we go to Canada? And Sarah just said, look, let's just go to Canada. So there wasn't like, it wasn't set in stone that we're going. It was kind of, it's likely we're going to go there, but let's see what else is available. A different set of challenges when you, when you arrive in Canada compared to, compared to India, compared to Switzerland, compared to, you know, your first job is, I think you mentioned that your first head or coaching job was at 20 years old. So a completely different set of challenges or, or. Yeah. I mean, I mean like when I started first, the first team I ever took was when I was 16 for the first four years. So I was 16 and then I did an advanced children's license when I was 21. Um, so I'd always been a head coach. I'd always been in charge making decisions. So for me, it wasn't a case of like, I need a team to coaches. I want a project and try and help a bunch of people. So when, when you arrive in, in Canada, you try and figure out what the lay of the land is. And because that's been going on for so long, you have, um, historical things that you don't know about that you have to learn about as you go. You have certain political things which um, which happens in every club. Like people have got relationships with other people and you want to do something but maybe you can't because three or four other people are affected and you need to discover that as you go. Um, what I realised really quickly was no curriculum. So we have no idea of what the kids have ever done. No session plans. No idea what the kids have ever done. No style of play, so everybody's just doing what they want. No cohesive working method between under-8s to under-12s or under-12s to 16s. So everybody's just doing what they want. It's like turning up in a jungle and going, right, how do you get all this to go together? So, and to be honest, John, still trying to get everything <laughs> so it'll work because every year you're like, like, and also you have quite a volatile system here. It's quite, fra- it's quite fragmented. You have like the Peel Halton League, the Hershey League, the Toronto League, you've got the Academy League, you've got the Club League, you've got three levels of Academy League, some run by cowboys. And people and parents are just buying stuff off people going, I want to do that because it's an academy. Academies must be good, says Academy. So when you arrive, you're, you don't know all these things. So you discover this as you go. So one big thing that we had to do was try and say, right, this is how we want to play based on what we know about Canada. Um what are the constraints that we have? So we have a seven-month winter. So we have the domes for seven months, which means for seven months you're training 30 kids in a 30 by 30 yard area, which again causes its own constraints and problems which you have to solve. And then you have to find a really good way of coaching to try and achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve within those constraints. Um, And then you have to have a different program for, for the summer because you have slightly more space. So you're trying to put all these things together. So you have a winter curriculum, a summer curriculum. You have a coach education for the summer, coach education for the winter, coach education for how you want to play. Then you have like house league development, OPDL. And then you realise the club has like 7,000 players. So <laughs> then you're trying to figure out like, how can you put all this together? And then you realise it's, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible. So then what you need is all your full-time staff to be on board with what it is that you want to do. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Um, but you have to try and convince them that you're all on the same path and that you can help them. Just now, I think, between Stephen, Jordan, Stephen and myself, like we're all on the same path, so it, so it works. But you're trying to figure out really early on, like what's the biggest, what's the smallest things that you can do that's going to make the biggest difference in the short term to try and get it where you want to go, then put your long-term 
plans in place, knowing the direction you want to go in. So I think that we're on we're on the right track. One big issue that we have is um if we have three years of, of weak coaching before us, then that affects the player pool. Which means that instead of having twelve of your own kids coming through, you maybe only have three. So then you have to recruit from outside and you're not getting the best from outside. You're getting ones that are maybe undervalued or cast offs. So then you have to spend more time coaching, which then if you lose a few games in Canada, people say your your club is terrible. But it comes down it doesn't come down to coaching, it comes down to player quality. So you have to spend more time developing the players to get them to win, which is fortunately like what my two teams have done in the last two years. But you're trying to get everybody to buy into this way of working, which is a long term plan. So Canada's Canada's a, a difficult place to work for a variety of reasons, but it's a huge challenge because you have to learn more about yourself and how you're going to get people on board than in India. Because in India, you can say whatever you want and they'll they'll buy into it. They'll go, okay, foreigner, knows what he's talking about. We know nothing about football. In Canada, a little bit of knowledge means that you, you're you an expert. So you have to work against that also. <laughs> Man, there's so many different ways we can go, go from there. <laughs> Um, it's like what I, what I would always always say is like it's enjoyable because you what I can see now is I can see that we've got a lot of coaches who now know what they're doing and they know the reasons why they're doing it and then they can make up sessions um, to reach their objectives and they'll say to me like I'm doing this session because I wanted to do it to do it in four weeks not because I wanted to do it today and they'll explain to the kids right today kids you'll probably not get this and it might be a bit of a mess but this is where we're going to go and these are the things we need to put in place. And the kids go, okay. So then you take away the fear of making mistakes out of them, which I think is important. You you mentioned that you're coaching two teams now in addition to... I, I was. Okay. I was before. So um, like I'm the coach development manager. So um, when I first came, I, I did my proper job for eight months and then a coach just resigned. So I had to take over a team um, for a few weeks. And then another coach resigned. So we managed to find a replacement for our team for me to take over that team. Then I took that team for, for about six months and then another coach left. So I had to replace me to for, to free me up to take another team. And then I took that team for like 18 months and then we managed to find somebody to replace me so I can do my actual job again. So if I'm not there at every session, mentoring everybody, it takes away from what I'm supposed to be doing rather than just coaching teams. So it's you have to balance everything. I, I'm. I want to explore maybe what some of the differences or challenges were for you at that moment, having to pick up and coach, you know, a team where you've you know spent the the majority of your time sounds like coaching coaches. So yeah. what what were some of the challenges that you faced or 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 realized during that moment? Like, hey, like you know, I, I haven't had to experience this firsthand for you know two, three, four years, however long it had been. Um. I mean, I hadn't actually coached a team properly since for like four years. Like since I left Switzerland, I hadn't been in charge of a team. So I remember going, right, what do I want to achieve from this? And what things can they do? And then let's try and figure out a way where we can do the things that they can't do and then strengthen what they want to know. And I remember going, right, okay, watching some of the games, they couldn't get the ball out from the back. One was a technical issue because their hips were facing the wrong way. And the second was because they couldn't take it with one foot and pass with the other to try and speed it up. So the speed between the receive and the release was was poor. So I had to fix that. So we made activities to fix the receive and the release in the hips. The second thing is we needed to fix the ability to understand how to create an overload. So if I'm the right centre-back to connect with the right central midfielder and the right-back to make a three-on-one on their left winger, 
how do I create a situation in training where we can not create a, just a, a static rondo, but how to move the ball into an area where a rondo will occur and then you can you can break forward. So to then achieve these sort of training practices, how to put them together. Um, and then looking at the back four as a whole to connect with the midfielders. So I'm trying to make sessions to get to a point where I go, right, how do I isolate the, the left winger, the right winger? How do I create a four-on-two on the striker, a four-on-one on the striker, for example, to, to bring the ball forward or a three-on-one? And then how do I get them to be positioned to split the midfield? So I'm asking them little questions as I'm going just to find out what information they've ever been taught. And a lot of it was... Uh, without telling them, it was goalkeeper, right centre-back, right back, right wing, throw in. Every time. We'd go down the same pattern every time and I'm going right. I did. It, I remember doing an experiment once. I was like, I took everybody out in midfield and left two on their own and the ball would never go to them. And I'm like, right, hud the bus here. Why are you not using the player in the middle? Because well, we've always been told not to. And I'm like, what? Never, never been. And then I'm, I'm then I'm reminding myself, going, I've been in the domes listening to this. Don't go in the middle. So these these kids under fourteens, under thirteens, they've been brainwashed for five years. Don't go in the middle. So now I have to un to get them to unlearn these bad habits while trying to teach them all the technical things. So we made practices where it encouraged them to go into the middle to open up the game. Eventually, we got to that point. I remember, I remember the first team I took. We had a right back called um, Alex Nickel, lovely wee girl, played right back. More of a central midfielder, but she played right back because that was where she was comfortable. Um, and we had her playing as a number 10 in possession, like a right-sided number 10. And the left winger of the opposition would never track her. The midfielder would never track her. She, she'd end up in this horrible pocket of space. And I remember thinking to myself one day, we've cracked this. I think we've got this. But then it doesn't matter because it's so inconsistent. So she's getting there, she's getting the ball, she's doing stuff, but the next week she doesn't. So you're trying to take over a team to give them as much help and information as you can in the short space of time you're going to be there because I know I'm not taking that team for three years where I can layer everything. So one of the biggest challenges was trying to figure out what can I teach them that nobody else would be able to teach them? And then if somebody else can teach them that, then why am I wasting my time doing that? Like I'm here to add value, not do what somebody else can do. How often do you talk about consistency with your coaches? And, and, oh, how, and how important is consistency? All the time. Well, you guys, so one of the first things is, right, if, if a coach says to me, today they played well, and then the next week they play terrible, I'll say, look, I'm not going to be happy until they play well every week. I don't want a 10 out of 10 one week and a 5 out of 10 the next. I want an 8 out of 10 every week. I want consistency. If they give me a 10 every six months, fine, but I want 8 out of 10 every single week. I want a consistent level of performance. That way we know we're on the right track. That way it's not just how the kids felt on that day, that the process is right. So if the coach wasn't there that day, we at least know what they're going to get. Um, so I talk about it all the time. So last year we took a lot of um, performance metrics from a data company and we'd assess things like passes, just to see how many passes they make. What was the pass completion rate? How many shots made, shots conceded? Where were the shots created from? Uh, where are we conceding shots from? And then given players a base target, so like in our... And our elite teams are saying we want 14 and a half shots on ta- on goal a game. We want seven and a half shots on target a game. So if we get more than seven, we're happy. If we get less than seven, we have to figure out why. Um, I think our passing target was 460 passes per game at 78% pass completion. So then we're going, right, that's what we want. So we're giving ourselves a target that if we if we achieve it, then, then at least we've, we've got some happiness. If we play a game and we're getting 68% pass completion, that's rubbish. 
it's nowhere near acceptable. So then you have to chew out the coach and be like, right, how is this? How is this happening? Why are we just booting it? Or why are the passes not being connected? Or what have we been doing in training? Let's figure out a solution to this. So if it varies wildly, then then we're not happy. If we've got a consistent amount of, then we know what to expect. Then we know how to what we can improve upon or where our starting point can be. But yeah, like consistency is it's one of the most important things. Can you imagine if you go to a restaurant and the chef's inconsistent at cooking a steak? You're not going to keep going back, are you? The guy's going to lose his plot. Like, get out of the kitchen. One steak rare, one steak burnt, get out. Everything's got to be consistently good. Otherwise, then what are we doing? Now, it's one of the things that I'm I'm constantly reminding reminding coaches of, especially coaches that are that are seeking out coaching education and and, and you know, wanting to try new things or change things. It's like, hey, like you need to stick with something long enough where you can see if, if you're going to get consistent results, good or bad. And if you're getting consi- consistently bad results, well, then you, you know that you need to change something. If yeah. you're getting consistently good results, eh, maybe it's just small tweaks that you need to be making. But if it's all over the place, that's probably yeah. due to something that, that you know the coach is most likely overlooking or, or not not paying attention to the details, I, I guess is, is one big thing, but, um, but, but consistency I think is, is something that probably should be a buzzword that, that isn't a buzzword. Yeah. I think it's one of the most important things in your life. Like if you're consistently, consistently turn up to work, for example, you're not like just some days you're there, some days you're not. If you're consistently good quality when you're there, some days you are, some days you're not. Like people want to know what they're going to get from you. I think. If you like, like for example, like we create content. If we create consistently good content, at least they know what they're going to get from us. If one day what you put is brutal, and the next day you put is something which is amazing, like do people, what do then people like? Do they start to question where the where the stuff comes from? I think it's an important life thing, not just in not just in football. One hundred percent, man. Well, shit, we, we, we spent a bunch of time talking about Indian soccer, and I didn't anticipate that. That <laughs> ate up a lot of time. Um, do you have like, like maybe five or ten more minutes? Of course. Okay. Um, at the end of all the interviews, I always ask the guests, what do people need to know? And I'm, I'm in, I, I, I want to ask you that now, and then maybe, maybe a couple follow-up questions. I, I just don't know how you'll answer that question, because I see like your activity on Twitter, and I see the, the conversations that you like to engage in. I know that you offer the coaching education business or, um, uh, yeah, bu- business. Um, and then you, you obviously have the, the director, the director experience, the role that you've, you know, you've had in multiple countries. So you can attack that question from a number of different angles. So I'm, I'm curious to see how you would answer, you know, what do people need to know? What do people need to know? Yeah. That's a, quite a profound question. I know. Um, I'm going to write a book with that question someday. I've asked that like, <laughs> like 75 people already, so I'm just going to take all the answers and make a book out of it. What do, you, what, what do you need to know? I think you need to know what your direction is in life. And why are we... Like, so one question I ask myself is, what's the point? Like, Why are we here? And I think... What do people need to know? Is like, what is it they want to achieve in their life? And how are you, how are you going to get there? And what steps do you need to take? Um, and... Is it going to be something which makes you happy? And at the end of it, if if what you're doing is going to, if you reach your objectives and you're a happy person and you've enjoyed yourself while doing it, then 
I think that's that's the right thing to do. I don't know if that's answered your question, but no, it it, it there's no right or wrong answer to it, and and I'm going to try to steer you into the, in into like the football direction. So that also applies to football, like like having an idea of what you want to accomplish. You mentioned that a second ago when you were talking about taking over the team. But if a coach is listening, you know, or, or sorry, not um, not listening. If a coach is seeking out, you know, information or education or things like that, they should probably start with what am I trying to achieve? Like, like why? Yeah. Why am I going to go to this person or listen to that person or, you know, like what what am I trying to achieve? And then start or start to kind of like map out the different steps and see where that actually fits. And instead of just you know, on a whim, purchasing this or reading that or or whatever. So. You know, kind of yeah. steer you back towards the football thing and, and get your reaction to that. Yeah, like, I think if you understand what it is that, if somebody says to you, what does a, a John Pranjic style of play look like? What does your team look like? Or what does a Stevie Greaves style of play look like? I would say I, I want it to look like Tuchel's, Bar- Tuchel's Dortmund, for example, or Klopp's Dortmund. That's what I want to see in the pitch. So then I go, right, that's my frame of reference. From my frame of reference, I've got all the things that I can analyse within the game tactically. And then how do I break down the tactics to all the positional profiles, the the unit profiles, the small group profiles, the collective profile of the team? How do I train each match cycle? So the attacking cycle, transition cycle, defensive cycle. And then how do I put all that together into a a block over a year? What do I want to try and accomplish by six weeks, by 12 weeks, by 18 weeks, whatever? What do I want to achieve this week? Do I deviate from the plan based on the result? Or do I deviate from the plan based on the process? So I can win a game 3 0, be absolutely raging about how badly we've played and change a few things based on that. Whereas I can be kind of happy about how we've played but lost 2 0 because I know the process isn't working. So, what does your style of play look like? What do you want people to say? That is what your team looks like. And are you happy about it? If somebody. If if I coach a team and they play absolutely dreadful football every week and keep winning, I'm I'm embarrassed to watch it, and I don't care if they win. Like I, my style of play and how we're going to be successful must be visible to everybody. So if any of our staff come to watch any of the teams I've ever coached, they will know that I have coached that team because it's a very distinctive way of playing. Patient from the ball press really quickly after you lose it. Try not to run back to your own goal too many times. Try and keep it in their half. There'll be little indications where you go, that's my team. There are other coaches in the club where it's quite clear how they want to play and how they want to coach. So what is your identity and what do you want people to think about you and your team based on how they watch your game? What type of person are you and is that visible on the field? Do you ever do you ever have these conversations with your coaches? Do you ask them to to describe, you know, their their identity or their process to you? I have done with a few of them. So a few of them, when there are a few who are at a level where tactics and putting a style of play in place isn't something that's ever crossed their mind. They're still trying to get the kids to receive, pass and dribble properly. So they're not thinking of the bigger picture. They're thinking very much of how do I solve this problem today, which you're trying to get them to change their mindset so that we can fix that anyway. There are, I'd say, about 10 coaches that I converse with regularly and I ask them all the time, like, what do you want to see? How are we going to get that forward? What is your style of play? And we've got one guy who, he's a little bit similar to me, and he he, he says, I want him to look like old man United. I want it to be fast. I want it to be aggressive. I want it to be able to score from wide areas. I want it to score from combinations. I want it to be like old school man United. 
And you can see now, like because we've looked at how do you put all that process together, that now that his team is starting to try and take that sort of shape. It's different from how my team plays, but all the teams want to play in possession. They all all want to play an attractive style and we all want to attack. None of our teams want to sit in a low block and play in the counter-attack, even if it gets you wins. And Can you imagine sitting on the bench for 20 games a season watching that rubbish? I'm a spectator, not just a coach. I have to watch that rubbish. So if it's boring, I'll say to the kids, kids, honest to God, I'm bored to tears watching this. Go and do something to liven it up because otherwise I'm going to sit on Twitter for the next hour to amuse myself. So I'll speak to the coaches and try and get them to understand what it is that they want and how they're going to put it forward. So we have um, we have one female coach who I've, I've asked her this question so many times that at the start she couldn't answer it. But now she'll say, oh, I want my team to look like... Um, I think she said she wanted her team to look like... Who was it? It was some weird team, actually. It was like Roberto Martinez's Wigan. And I was like, I was just like, what? And she was like, yeah, I remember watching them a few years ago and they played like this really weird system. But it was like a 3-4-3 three, three or something like that. And I really liked it playing. They moved the ball in a certain way. And I was like, okay. And she'd like, and she'd been to two games. She was like, so I kind of liked that. And I was like, okay, fine. Like, if you want to look like that, then, then by all means, like, like, but have a clarity of what it is that you want. Some of them are just like, oh, I just want them to, to win. <laughs> trying to get them away from looking at the result and looking at the process. So it is something that I ask a lot of them about, but not all, not everybody is at that level where they can think exactly about what it is that they they see them, if I see myself on the field. It's something I've I've thought about mm, not, not as much recently, but especially when I, I, and I don't have a team currently, but when I did have a team, something I thought about all the time and, and I started to write out like my my model, my game model, my philosophy, and, and, and just to put all these ideas in, in one spot. And I didn't realize how fucking hard that was. Like, you know, you say all these things and you, and, and you, you learn, you read, you watch you, all these things and you have all these ideas floating around in your head. And it makes sense when it's inside your own head, but trying to get that out of your head and teach that or tell that to other people is extremely difficult. Yes. And, and I would, I would actually challenge people to, to sit down and, and either yeah, just record or record a video themselves talking about their own style of play or, or, or sit down and try to type it out because they would realize, I think, how difficult that process really, really is. And you would learn a lot about yourself as a coach going yeah. through that exercise. I mean, like last last year towards the end of the season, there was a few guys on, on Twitter who'd messaged me and said, because um, I'd put out the games that we played and they'd like, your, your team is a very distinctive style. And I was like, can you please do like a match analysis of it? Like do three or four games, take as long as you need. And it was interesting again, other, like, because if I, if I sit and analyse like Man City v Chelsea at the weekend, I'll see so many things, you'll see so many things. It's a weird thing having somebody else sit and analyse your own team because I can look at it and I know what I've done and what I haven't done and I know where the weaknesses are. It's weird having somebody else do it. And then if I think, say, like the build-up play is perfect, Somebody else says to me, oh, no, your left back is too deep. And I'm looking at the videos and I'm like, actually, yeah, I know that. But I know why she's so deep. Because I want the other team's winger to man marker so it leaves space for my attacking midfielder. So I'm looking at it going, yes, that is completely correct. But I'm doing it deliberately to free somebody up. But then I'm looking at it going, well, does that make her less effective? And then I start questioning it. And then I start watching the games myself and going, actually, 
there are times where you can go in the overlap. You don't need to protect. I want you to go to do other things. So it's, it's, it's been weird having a bunch of other people do like, one guy did a season analysis. He did like all, all 17 or 18 games on YouTube. And I was like, you're an absolute madman. And he was like, best learning experience ever of actually being able to speak to somebody who's coached that team. Because if we sit and analyse, say, like Man City or LA Galaxy or anybody, how many times can you actually contact the coach and ask, like, specifically what have you done and what training sessions and what messages have you given them? So I don't know if you can speak to, uh, is it Brian that, that coaches professional youth football and ask him exactly how you put it all together. It's, it's interesting. Otherwise, you're just guessing. And no, hoping I, you get- that's, it's, it's actually, so it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a it's a it's a gripe I have sometimes with with people when they they put out videos and and things analyzing a game they watched on TV, for instance, right? It's like how how do you how do you know what they've been working on? How 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 can you say with authority that this is right or wrong based on watching their game on on Saturday, right? You yeah. you weren't there Monday through Friday, so how do yeah. you know if they're achieving their objectives or doing this or doing that? If this is what was asked of the players. So I, I I tend to not not pay as much attention to those types of those types of things, especially like halftime shows and 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 things like that. Like those to me are it's more like comedy hour, especially in in, in the United States. Um, but I do like do, doing or seeing or hearing things like you just mentioned. Like okay, yeah, Stevie puts his game up on on YouTube, and and then Stevie's going to talk about his game, or he's going to have somebody come in and interview him about his game. I love that type of stuff, and I love people that put their own work out there and which is something that you do and, and why, uh, why I take your work seriously. Um, a lot of guys, a lot of guys don't, don't throw their own work out there. They only do their analysis of other people's programs. And I'm like, yeah, eh, like show me your work too, bud. So yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons why I actually do, I, I do respect your work and, and, and why I wanted to interview you actually. So thank you. Yeah. Um, where, uh, where can people find, find your work and where can people connect with you and, and find out more about what you offer and, and what you're up to outside of, uh, outside of just coaching on the field. Um, people can follow me on Twitter, which is at Stevie grieve. Um, there will be a mismatch of pictures of my little boy and my dog, <laughs> some football related stuff. Um, in the next couple of weeks, there'll be endless plugs for tactical teacher because the level two in the app are coming out. So, so hopefully that'll be, that'll be useful for people. Um, there's, a, there's a Vimeo page. So vimeo.com forward slash Greavesy. There's like um, little analysis segments of just things that I found interesting. Um, and then if you want to watch some of my, my old team's matches, they're on YouTube. So you can put in Burlington Bayhawks OPDL and there's a couple of teams I've coached of girls football, which I'd never coached girls until last year, which was an eye-opening experience, shall we say. Um if you want to watch them, then you can you can watch them on YouTube, or I can send you the links towards the Vimeo page. So, yeah, I have quite a lot of stuff online. the the Vimeo The Vimeo page is pretty interesting. I like the uh, all right. I I still revisit some of them, but you just do like ten second clips of like a, yeah. a a certain action, and I I love stuff like that, and and being able to share that with a player, like hey, like you know, if you play the six, you know, here's an example of of a top 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 level six doing something that you should be doing too. Yeah. So actually, in tactical teacher, like there's a lot of like ten or twenty second clips because I think like when I tested it on my wife, I was like, "Can you see this?" 
And she'd look at it five times and she'd go, actually, I do see that because I've just seen the picture of it and now I see it in the game. And I'm going, if I show you a three-minute clip, do you see it? And she's like, no, it's just mumbo-jumbo to me. So, yeah, I, I did it for the purpose of, like, coaches to focus specifically on one thing. But, yeah, 10-second clips to me are, like, more interesting than, than like, a five-minute analysis of somebody. I switch off pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why gifts are so important, too, because they just replay over and over and over the same thing. Yeah, yeah, messy free kick gifts. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Um, anything anything that we didn't get to that you think you you want to get out to the universe? Anything that's on your mind that we didn't cover? We could have covered millions of things, I but know. spent so much time talking about India being mad. <laughs> what we'll, we'll have to do a round two, man. I would I wouldn't mind doing a round two. I, very very seldom do do I get people back on the show for multiple visits, but I I honestly wouldn't mind having you back on multiple times. That'd be good. I've I've enjoyed this one. It's been nice. Cool. Um. All right, man. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. We'll catch up soon. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll shoot you the link when uh when this thing's all packaged up and and ready to go out. Probably not next week, but the week after. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right, man. Cheers, man. All right, later. See you soon. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 Coaching Education Program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.